Hey, welcome to Sunday Messages. We pray this message inspires and encourages you to go deeper in an overflowing relationship with Jesus. We are jumping right into the Christmas season as we kind of jump into a new Christmas series and explore just kind of the timeless wisdom of God's Word in relation to the Christmas story, and we're just so happy you're here. I'm going to let you know there's a lot of scripture today, Uh, so if you haven't if you don't know about it or you haven't been following along, if you were to go into the Holy Bible app or the Version app that's available through every device, device, device uh, you can go to the events tab and you can see the Harbor Church and all of our notes that I'm going to be speaking on today are there. All the scriptures, you can add your own notes, you can save those for later, or you can follow along. Of course, they will be on the screen as much as possible, but I uh, just want to let note that is there for you to follow along. But what we're going to do is we are going to jump into a new series called Merry and Bright as we really discovered that the real thing that allows this season to be merry and bright is not the gifts that we receive under the tree, but the gift of salvation that is freely offered to all of us today. That's what gives us the hope of this season. That's what brings joy and peace. That's what makes it merry and bright. And what we're going to do is we've been processing this series and every Christmas, how many of you know the Christmas story never changes? <laughs> it's not like you can come up with a new story. But the, w- w- as we continue to unpack it and look into the Christmas story and what it actually means for us, and as we're kind of praying about it this year, I just really thought it'd be cool to jump into the story of the wise men and just kind of identify and discover the three gifts that presented by the wise men and kind of what their prophetic meaning was. And really, more than that, how does it, how does that impact our approach, how we approach Jesus and maybe more importantly, how we actually worship him. That there's actually deep significance to these three gifts. And there's actually something that we can learn from and maybe relearn or reapply in our life. If we're, if we're honest, you know, I, fall, I kind of find myself in this season as sometimes we get to Christmas, we like kind of just coast through the Christmas story. We read, through, we read the story of the, the nativity and we just sort of peruse through it. We're like, oh, we know it. And we don't allow the meaning of it to to get into our heart again, we sort of miss out on the opportunity. So my prayer, as we jump, right even before we even jump in, that we would allow our hearts to receive the Christmas story, maybe with fresh eyes, maybe with an open heart, that we would allow ourselves to maybe hear something, see something, and maybe respond in a new and different way. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna jump in, we're gonna camp out over the next three weeks on the story of the wise men, and more specifically, the three gifts that they offered to the Christ child. Can we just open a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is alive and active. We thank you, Lord, that it brings fruit. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive all that you want to do today in our lives. In your precious name, amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Matthew, 1, Matthew chapter 2. That's where we're going to pick up the story of the wise men. It will be on the screen. It reads this. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men, other, challenge, other translations would call them magi, or even some would call them royal astrologers, from the eastern land arrived in Jerusalem. Why in Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem was the capital city of Jerusalem, of Judea, so it just made sense that that's where the king would be. So they went to Jerusalem asking, where is this newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, let's just take a a pause right there before we jump into the rest of the story. As we kind of of unpack and maybe discover who these wise men 
were. Many of us have sung the We Three Kings song. We have a, a version of it. Maybe some of you have a, a nativity scene set up in your home and you have the wise men are there. But who were these wise men? Well, if you study the Bible or if you study even history, you realize that these wise men were a select class of sort of priest-like influencers throughout the ancient Persia. I mean, in fact, we actually see the Magi or these wise men in the days of or even the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel had been taken to Babylon in 606 BC, so this is 600 years before Christ, during King Nebuchadnezzar's siege of Jerusalem. And Daniel was appointed by the king, by Nebuchadnezzar, to be over all of the wise men in Babylon. You can read that about that in Daniel chapter 2. And then when the Medes and the Persians took over Babylon and there was a new emperor, a new reign, they established this hereditary priesthood, and we call it a priesthood in quotations, lowercase priesthood, of wise men, which were also known as magicians, or in short, magi. And just as Nebuchadnezzar had made Daniel sort of the ruler of all the wise men of Babylon, this new king, King Darius, also appointed Daniel to be the master of magicians. So we see this, this is not just, a, a, this is the 600 years in the making of this, this culture of wise men or, and wise magicians. Historically, this group of quote-unquote religious professors, religious scholars were philosophers and scholars. They, they were also known as scientists and obviously magicians, and they, they were to perform chemistry and magic. They were also highly educated in the fields of astronomy and astrology. And so because of their knowledge and their influence, they also served as what we would call political advisors or even king makers. They were influencers. They, they surrounded themselves with royal priesthood, I mean royal palaces and kings and kingdoms, which is why they would have been given audience to King Herod in coming into Jerusalem. It's also interesting to note that the connection between the book of Matthew and this story, because Matthew, the, the, the author of Matthew, his whole objective in throughout the whole book of uh, the Gospel of Matthew is to, um, is to present Jesus as his rightful king in the line of David. And Matthew is the only gospel that actually records the Magi's visit, the wise men's visits, because of the importance of the lineage of David, this kingdom that, was a, that, w- that he was a part of. So a couple of fun facts that I think are pretty interesting to the story. One, if you don't know, maybe I'll just kind of pop the bubble, is that the wise men were not there in the stable. They were not there the day that Jesus was born. The shepherds were there, we know that. The angels were there, we know that. The cows were there, we know that. But the wise men didn't come onto the scene until almost a year or even more later. There's still a little bit of uncertainty of where, how much longer they were, but they weren't there in the stable. They also know that these wise men, while we say we three kings, a famous song, I don't want to pop your bubble, but there weren't three kings. Scripture doesn't give us that. It says there's three gifts, but we know there's three kings. In fact, if you were to read through it a little bit more, our, even though our tradition would only come to these three kings, we would read historical information would be like more likely a cavalry of formidable men on horseback. One, one theologian says, most likely it was a cavalry of formidable men. If you actually read, we're going to skip over this part, but, but King Herod was troubled at their presence. He was, and all of Jerusalem and Judea with him. Meaning, when they, when they arrived on scene, they were coming in in force. They were coming, they were making a, a statement, they were making a mark, which caused the king 
to be nervous, which caused all of Jerusalem to be troubled with him. And so we know it wasn't just three old men. It was three wise men. Wise men does not mean old, though wise men can be old. They were three wise men. They were part of the Magi. They were part of this religious sect. They were kingmakers. There was an entourage of these men carrying treasures. I love that. I think so many times if you look, if you, you know, we look at the stories, we see, we see nuggets of gold or, or trinkets. We see like souvenirs. The Bible says they brought treasures of gold. So we, again, we don't know. It doesn't give you specifics. But I can only imagine it was more than just a handshake. Right? Anyway, so we pick up on the story. So after the brief and troubling encounter with King Herod, we pick up on the story in chapter 2, verse 9. It says, Then the wise men went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem, which is this small and seemingly insignificant village outside the city. And they went ahead of them, and it went ahead of them, and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And they entered into the, notice this, the house, not the stable. And they saw the child, not the baby, with his mother. Mary, they, and uh, his mother Mary. And they bowed down, and they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasure chests, and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so as we start this study, as we look into this study, it's important to know that these were not just random gifts. These were not just things they had things, things lying around. These weren't just things that they thought would be, in, it'd be, it'd be functional. The first century church understood that these three types of gifts clearly symbolize three aspects of Christ's identity. One, the gold represents, uh, points to Jesus' royalty. The frankincense points to his divinity. And the myrrh points to his humanity. In fact, you would argue that throughout the whole, throughout their gift giving, these wise men actually proclaimed the gospel in illustrated form, in a very tangible way. Whether they knew it or not, the gifts told the story of how God himself came down from heaven as a king, gold, to fulfill the priestly duties of reconnecting humanity back to God, frankincense, by laying down his life, becoming the final atonement for our sin, myrrh. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to pause and reflect on each gift and explore sort of the prophetic significance of what they mean and examine kind of the impact it has on our view of God and our worship of this Christ child. So let's start with gold. Gold represents the kingship. As we look at gold, even in our own time, but even especially back in Old Testament and New Testament days, gold in the Bible was a symbolic of deity or symbolic of royalty. It presents the most it represents the most precious of metals and is extremely rare in its purest form. We, we know that its, its intrinsic value of gold has been established since the ancient times and gold was used to honor kings as gifts. We see that King Solomon had an ivory throne and he overlaid it. Can you imagine overlaying an ivory throne with the best gold? We see the furniture of the tabernacle features gold, symbolically pointing to Christ and his deity. We see the Ark of the Covenant was constructed with acacia wood, which is symbolic of Jesus' humanity, but then overlaid with gold, symbolizing his divinity. The very mercy seat of God, the two cherubim, were made of pure gold. Since gold represents God, it's no surprise that many idols and false gods were created of gold. Gold was pure and valuable metal associated with God's precepts and his principles and his promises. It was gold that represented the very value in the essence of God. And so this gift of gold 
This gift of gold presented as small or as large as it may have been, the gift of gold did two things. One, it appointed Jesus as the promised, uh, the promised king in the line of David. What they were doing is they were proclaiming Jesus as the promised king. This wasn't just a child. This wasn't just a prophet. This wasn't just another good teacher. This wasn't another future rabbi. This was a king. King worthy, a king child worthy of the gold. You see, the Magi were king makers. It was a responsibility in part to affirm and establish the new king by providing the rightful lineage. I don't, we don't know for sure, but somewhere along the way, Somewhere along the way, possibly, these sort of heretical priests learned, learned and studied biblical prophecy. They used, they, and they used their influence proclaimed, they used their influence to proclaim Jesus as king. And we don't know if Daniel had influenced him to that as he was the leader of the wise men. But somewhere along the way, they understood biblical prophecy and they recognized Jesus as the coming king. I want to read a few scriptures for you really quick to help point that out. In 2 Second, Second Samuel 7, it says, God made a promise to David. He said, I will rise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and he will establish the throne of his kingdom and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Isaiah 1, 11, 11, 1 says, the shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. From him, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Psalm 1, 132 says, I swore, the Lord swore an oath to, the, to David with the promise that he will never take back. He said, I will place one of your descendants on your throne. Your royal line will continue forever and ever. My anointed one will be the light for all people, and he will be a glorious king. Jeremiah 23, 5, it says, For a time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant of King David's line. He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land, and his name will be the Lord is our righteous. And then we see in Matthew 1, 1, the first book of the New Testament, first book of the gospel, first gospel in the four. And this is a genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you read throughout all of verse 1, uh, chapter 1, you see the whole lineage that links from Abraham to David to Jesus. So not only did the wise men proclaim Jesus as king, but we see throughout the New Testament, we see that people actually proclaimed Jesus is king. We see that as he was riding in Jerusalem on a donkey, people were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. We see that even Pilate proclaimed Jesus as king. Pilate proclaimed Jesus as king. He, Pilate had noticed and, and prepared and fastened to the cross uh, this, this, this sign, and it read, King uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. We see that even Jesus himself proclaimed himself as king. Jesus himself, he said, even when he's standing in front of the governor in Matthew 27, he says, the governor says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, you have said so. He's re and Jesus replied. So Jesus proclaimed himself as king. Jesus spoke over 60 times of the kingdom of God during his earthly ministry and that the kingdom of God was here on earth and is found in the hearts of all who belong to Jesus. So not only did the the gold represent and point to Jesus as the, the king in the line of David, but it also ushered in a new kingdom that would bring peace. It ushered in a new kingdom that would bring peace. See, first century Jewish followers were expecting, they were hoping for a conquering king. They were expecting a, a conquering king, one who would overthrow and occupy political powers. And if we were honest, 
I think some of us are still hoping for that kind of king, aren't we? If we're honest, some of us in this room are looking for somebody to rise up and defeat the political powers once and for all in this earthly world, in this earthly kingdom. And instead of Jesus coming as king who would take life in order to gain a temporary throne, Jesus would come to lay down his life as a ransom for many, bringing an eternal peace that comes in heaven and alone. And so through Jesus, we see that he restored broken relationships with God. You know, through him, he restored our broken relationship with God in Romans 5.1. Therefore, anyone, therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We see that he's also then provided a better way for us to live. Colossians 3 tells us that the, let the peace of God that comes, that rules in our, that rule, that, sorry, let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. And thirdly, because of him, he assured our eternal destiny. He says, John tells us, I'm leaving, with, I'm leaving you with a gift, the gift of peace of mind and heart. Who wants that gift today? Peace of mind and heart. And the peace that I give you, the world cannot give. Many of us are trying to find this in other things, in earthly things, in temporary things, but Jesus said, no, you can't get that from there. So don't be troubled or afraid. See, what do we know about peace? Well, peace isn't the absence of chaos. We want it to be. We hope it would be. Peace isn't the absence of hardship. Peace isn't the fall of a political empire, earthly power. Peace, simply put, is the presence of God. It's the presence of God. It's that view of a, of a child in their parents' arms while the storm is brewing. It's, it's the view of, a, of a, a mother hen covering their chicks in the middle of a storm. It's that view that in the presence we can have peace where everything will be okay. Everything's going to be okay. It's that sense of assurance that everything's going to be okay. And we can believe it because who is saying it? C.S. Lewis writes it this way. He says, life with God is not immunity from difficulties, but peace within difficulties. It's not immunity. We know that. If you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, you realize that you're going to have trouble. Hardships come. But we can have peace within those things because of the presence of God, because of his kingship and his lordship. So how do we respond? What do we do? How do we respond to this reality that God, that Christ is king? What do we say to that? I was, as I was studying, I came across this beautiful quote from John Piper, which I believe just kind of captures the heart of our response. He starts off by saying the gifts are intensifiers of the giver's desire for Christ himself, much the way that fasting is. And then he says, when you give a gift to Christ like this, it's a way of saying the joy that I pursue is not the hope of getting rich with things from you. I have not come to you for your things, but for yourself. And this desire I now intensify and demonstrate by giving up things is the hope of enjoying you more, not things. And then I love this line. It says, by giving to you what you do not need and what I might enjoy, I am saying, I am saying more earnestly and more authentically that you are my treasure, not the things. Isn't that beautiful? By giving to you what you do not need. He doesn't need your gold, right? By giving to you what you do not need and what I might enjoy. 
I could use some gold. Right? Come on now. I am saying more earnestly and more authentically, you are my treasure. Man, oh, that be our prayer. Oh, that be our response. That you are my treasure, not these things. So when the wise men are presenting their gifts to Jesus, the wise men were not purchasing anything with their gifts, right? They weren't trying to buy something. They weren't trying to earn anything. They were simply praising God through their gifts. They were praising God through their gifts, saying, you are the one that we treasure. You are the one that we adore. So here's my question. How does the fulfillment of Jesus as king impact our worship? How does it change our approach? How does it change our view? How should we respond as we approach this Christmas season? Here are three things that I'd like to bring to your attention today that I would love us to consider and maybe allow it to bring new life into our hearts as we approach the story of Christmas. Like the wise men, we need to, one, worship him preeminently. What does this mean? It means worship him above all else and others, right? Above all else and others. In the presence of earthly kings, we see that the wise men were not, they sought out the king of kings. In the presence of of earthly kings, they were not satisfied with earthly kings. They were looking for the king of kings. They were not satisfied with King Herod. They were searching for the Messiah. If you fast forward to the end of the story in Revelation 19, 16, there's this beautiful image where it says, on his robe and on his thigh, he was the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, King Jesus came as not just a king, not just as another king, but he came as the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the authority of, upon authority. Christ didn't come as another king. He came as full, all supreme power and all authority. He is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And when they found him, when they came to his place, they bowed on down their knee and they worshiped him. Can you imagine this beautiful picture? A child, the would-be king. See, this type of awareness, this type of response, this type of revelation that you and I get through the Spirit should cause us humility, should bring us to humility, right? First Peter tells us that we should humble ourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand so that he may lift you up in due time. See, worship starts, it starts with humility. It starts with recognizing who God is and who I am. It, it starts with acknowledging what God is able to do and where my limitations start. <laughs> like it recognizes the position. You know, humility doesn't come in and dictate the type of the, the terms of the relationship. Humility comes in and serves the relationship terms. That he is king, he is God, and we are not. Jesus even emphasized this in the, in the Lord's Prayer when he teaches his disciples how to pray. He says, our Father in heaven, once you start, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. You are superior. You are righteous. You are higher and above. He is our Father who loves us. Yes, thank you for that. But he's also our King who rules over us. I think sometimes we fall into this ditch of just embracing the fatherhood of God and the grace of God that we also forget that he is a King who rules. We're so grateful that for his grace and his love us that he loves us as we are, but we forget that he also doesn't, he loves us enough not to leave us the way we are. We forget that he's, we got a position, we have proximity with him as a son, but then we also have priorities with him as citizens. We have responsibilities and we have relationship. It's both and. We have this beautiful opportunity to be invited into the throne room of God as child, children of God, 
But we also have this opportunity as citizens of heaven to follow in his rules and follow under his authority. He is a king. And while we get to worship him as father, we get to approach him as a father, we have to respect him as king. Philippians 2, 9, it's not in your notes, but it says, therefore God exalted him in the highest place and gave him what? The name above every name. Every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee, every knee will bow. And I love this. Every knee will bow in heaven, every knee will bow on earth, and every knee under the earth. All of the angels, all of humanity, all the demons will recognize that Jesus is Lord and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. He is not just our Father, I thank you for his Father, but he is our King. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the name above every other name and one that we need to revere as holy, set apart, and righteous. He's preeminent. We cannot lose sight of that. He is not just another God. He is not just another good thing. He is not just another wise fable or good prophet. He is Lord and King over all. And so the Bible tells us that we will either be, we can either humble ourselves, right? Or we will be humbled. And here is the reality. If we wait for the day to be humbled, it's too late. Can I tell you that? If you wait for the day to be humbled, it will be too late. So Paul, so Peter tells us, humble yourselves now. Submit yourselves to his rule. Submit yourselves to his authority. Submit yourself now to his kingship so that one day, at the right time, he will then lift you up. And this is the glory for the glory of God. Secondly, we worship him personally. What does this mean? It means with your whole heart. Right? We see this in, in the second part. The whole heart. This isn't a half-hearted pursuit, but this kind of falls in line with our vein. This is all in. This is an all-in invitation that we get to worship him with our full heart. The wise men didn't just commit half their life. They committed their life. They committed to pursuing and studying and seeking Jesus, the king of kings. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with what? All your heart. You gotta go all in. It's not half-hearted pursuit. Hebrews tells us, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. Come boldly to his throne. Seek him. Pursue him personally that you receive mercy and find grace to help us where you need it most. I was thinking about this as you read through scripture. Do you notice what you don't find in scripture? You don't find son, grandsons and granddaughters in scripture. You find sons and daughters. Some, I, I, some of you need to hear me. You don't find grandsons and granddaughters. You find sons and daughters. What does this mean? It means you cannot get into heaven on your father's and mother's good influence. You cannot get into heaven. You cannot have a relationship with Jesus through somebody else's personal experience. Jesus invites all of us personally to come before him individually. You may have godly influencers and all godly influences who teach us and, and show us the way, but every one of us have to come to that personal moment of revelation and response where we worship him personally. It's a personal call. It's a personal invitation. It doesn't matter your earthly position. It doesn't matter your earthly power. Listen, this is not something you can get an assistant for. You know, a lot of things in life, you can get an assistant to help you kind of get it done. This is not one of those things. This is a you. This is on your to-do list. This is your priority. Every one of us have the responsibility. We're created equal in this response and required to what? Bend the knee. To bend the knee and call him Lord. Doesn't matter if you're authority, doesn't matter how important you are, how wealthy you are, 
We're all called to bend the knee personally and worship him. Thirdly, we're called to worship him persistently. Persistently. See, the wise men traveled from Babylon. Come on, this is like this all cost. It doesn't matter. I'm all in. I'm worshiping persistently at all costs. The wise men had traveled from Babylon a distance of about 600 miles from the, on, by foot. Can you imagine traveling <laughs> that far by foot? Camel, maybe horseback, we don't fully know. Estimated it took them about six to 12 months to get there. When the star disappeared, they didn't give up. They just, they went to the only place, the logical place. They went to where a king would be born. So they went to the palace in Jerusalem. They said, okay, is that where we're going to be? And when they came to the wrong king's palace, they didn't find him there. They didn't give up. They kept on searching. They kept on looking. They kept on studying. And they found out he would be, he would be born in a village called Bethlehem. And so they carried on. And they were rejoiced when the star reappeared. And they kept going, determined to meet the king and worship him. So they knew, they knew lots of time had passed, right? Time had gone. Time had come and gone. But they were persistent. They were committed to pursuing the king. Jesus tells us, what, what will you benefit if you gain the whole world, yet you lose your soul? Matthew tells, Jesus tells us again, and Matthew says, so seek first the kingdom above all else. Seek first the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and then he will give you everything you need. Can I challenge you this year and this Christmas to make your pursuit of the king your highest priority? I know a lot of us are busy planning Christmas parties and family get-togethers and trying to find that perfect gift for our loved one, our family members, and, and that's kind of is on our heart. But can I challenge you today to make your pursuit of Christ, your worship of Christ as king, your highest priority. That you would seek first the kingdom of God. Like what would it look like if we were able to readjust our priorities this year? I'm not saying cancel Christmas. I'm not saying, you know, skip everything back. I'm just saying make him the priority. Sometimes, sometimes, maybe on, maybe, you know, sometimes we just sort of, like, well, let's just, we just, let's just do it just so we feel good about ourselves. Let's just read the Christmas story or let's just, we'll get through the motions. And we do it as sort of like a checking off the box because we're Christian, we're a Christian home. We need, we need to make sure we don't lose Christ in Christmas and we just sort of stumble through, we push it in. But can I challenge us again this year that we pursue him as the most important thing? Gathering with friends and family is beautiful. Giving gifts, each other's gifts are beautiful. But may the gift that we give to God, our heart to him, be the most important thing we offer this year. And so this Christmas, may we get a fresh revelation of Jesus as King, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the beginning and the end. And may this revelation cause us to be like the wise men, to worship him preeminently above all else and others, to worship him personally with our whole heart and to worship him persistently at all costs. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the reality that you came into this brokenness and this broken world, not just as a good teacher, not just as a good spiritual leader, 
but you came as king to rule and to reign and to usher in a new type of kingdom. One where there would be hope and peace and joy. And Father, we thank you that your ways are not our ways and the way you bid about doing it is not the way we would have done and do it, gone about doing it, but God, your way is eternal. Our ways are fleeting, but your ways are above our ways. Your thoughts are above our thoughts. And so God, as king and as your citizens in your kingdom, we trust you, we honor you, revere you, we follow you as Lord of our life, as king of heaven. And we worship you with our full heart, with all that we are, we make it personally, we pursue you. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you reveal yourself to us again, anew and afresh this season. For your glory's sake, we pray this in your precious name. Amen. Well, I hope that message was an encouragement to you today. I want to challenge you to stay tuned and take a listen to Sunday Encore, where we have a more candid conversation about the practical application of Sunday's message.